Hi and welcome. This is Disability Saves the World with Dr. Fadi Shnuda. I am Fadi Shnuda. This podcast brings you insights from leading experts in disability and math studies from around the world. You'll hear about the research and work of disabled scholars, artists, activists, and our allies. You'll also get some insight into their lives, their favorite non-DS activities, hobbies, and adventures. Most importantly, however, you'll get to hear how they think disability can save the world. My name again is Fadi Shinuda. I use he, him pronouns. I'm an assistant professor in the Pauline Jewett Institute of Women's and Gender Studies at Carleton University on unceded Algonquin territory. On today's show, I'm joined by Dr. Adam Davies, who uses they, them pronoun from the Department of Family Relations and Applied Nutrition at Guelph University. Dr. Davies is also a registered Ontario certified teacher and a registered childhood educator. I'm excited to speak to them about their work, I'm writing a paper right now, um, just reflecting on my experiences, both in pre-service, early childhood um, education and teacher education program. Their life outside of academia. And I actually brought out on my PlayStation 2, I have this like American Idol karaoke game. (laughs) And so I brought out my American Idol karaoke and set up my PlayStation 2 again so that I could um, sing on my karaoke. And to ask them how they think disability can save the world. Welcome. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a pleasure. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to speak to you. I'm very happy to have you on the show. And I guess let's jump right into segment one, what I like to call inside the project, the research, the work, the art. And I want to know why disability studies, why math studies? Yeah, so I think my journey with um, disability studies and math studies um, started when I was in teacher education actually. And um, at the time when I was um, doing my teacher education certification, I was in the world of kind of um, special education and inclusive education, so to speak. So um, so that was kind of my um, my early foray into disability and more through like the biomedical um, understandings of disability, which are commonly focused on in pre-service programs. And so when I was doing my teacher training, I remember even as I was learning all this content and I had yet to be exposed to disability studies, I just knew that there was um, there were stories missing. There were things that were were missing. And, and I would often think like, you know, first off, where are the voices of disabled people? And um, secondly, um, just even in terms of the ways in which um, the literature um, was constructing those with disabilities, I just I just knew something was missing. So um, in graduate education, I got exposed to disability studies and it was like this whole new world opened up for me, which was incredible. And um, at the time I was also diagnosed with um, ADHD as an adult and I had struggled throughout post-secondary education with um, learning disabilities too. And um, I also was diagnosed in my undergrad with uh, several mental health conditions and um, had chronic anxiety attacks. And so uh, education in general was like a very difficult sphere for me. I had a lot of challenges even just throughout my undergrad um, before I went to teacher education in like getting accommodations and right. Um, you know, I had a lot of anxiety around testing. And so um, I had eventually my own space for, for tests. Um, but, but yeah, anyways, I just knew that, um, that there was something missing in my initial kind of exposure to 
um, to disability through that biomedical lens. So when I got exposed to disability studies and mad theory, it really kind of started to open up different ways for understanding disability and also ways um, that I started to be able to deconstruct things that I'd been through in the institution of higher education, um, forms of erasure that I, I'd felt. I know that as a teacher candidate, I really struggled with um, wanting to be more open about my mental health, especially as someone that, um, you know, mental health is a forever part of my journey and one that I I'm very proud of, and um, I also like the ways in which, especially as we see in MAD studies, thinking with mental health gets us um, considering, you know, different ways of knowing in the world and, mm -hmm. and starting to challenge these things that we, we take for granted. And I know uh, that idea of rationality uh, was something that I always had a very tumultuous relationship with. <laughs> and so seeing things that were actually starting to, or encountering literature that was actually starting to deconstruct that and take that apart um, was really, really, um, was really powerful for me. And again, it got me thinking back into my experiences in the school system. You know, like even as a young boy, I was very like, I think I, I, my teachers always use that word. He's so sensitive. Like that's kind of how I, I was right. always described. And um, there is a, a lot of connotations around like failing to perform rationality, even like in my journey as a child through the education system and, um, you know, pathologization of, I think my, de de like my demeanor, the way I carried myself, um, at school and obviously those are very much gendered as well and and so you know throughout the school system I had a lot of uh, teachers kind of questioning why I was you know quiet or like why I didn't want to play with the boys or um you know like stuff like that that um you know started to also um, bleed into like oh is there something wrong with him like do, does he have something going on and um you know like do we need to be concerned and, and all these questions and um I remember even as a kid that I you know had people think that you know I might have an anxiety disorder or something but um you know that wasn't uh, I don't think my my family were ready to kind of go down the path of of diagnosis and whatnot and so so I just like kind of continued with that journey and then like I said it wasn't until university that I got diagnosed and I did my undergrad in education as well too as music education and so I was already in the school system and starting to get exposed to placements and working with, with children and I had a lot of um, experience working with kids outside of um, my formal education trajectory um, so all that being said is I had a lot of exposure to kind of what education as a system was like at a very young age. Um, and so I realized that there were a lot of performative notions around like who educators were expected to be and they were supposed to be very much like these quote unquote role models and the role models often um, was about like performing this idea of professionalism and professionalism also meant like rationality and, you know, being put together. Mm -hmm. And I just had a lot of feelings <laughs> and I still have a lot of feelings. And, and I think like, I just never felt like I, yeah, I've never felt like I fit in with that. Um, and then, um, and then, like I said, going to teacher education and um, only seeing one narrative around what disability was expected to be and what madness was expected to be. Um, 
you know, was really, was really hard. And, and, you know, again, like it wasn't until I got exposed to disability studies, I started taking courses um, during my grad, graduate studies with Tanya Tchaikovsky at OISE and started um, being exposed more to um, different narratives around disability and, and how disability can really, and madness can really have us thinking about um, these norms in wider society. And it just got me reflecting. It got me reflecting back to, you know, my, all my experiences in pre-service um, teacher education, right? Like, right? Whether it was in the undergraduate level or whether it was in the, my actual pre-service programs. And, you know, times where I had, you know, educators tell me that, you know, maybe I should find a different path because I have mental illness and like, maybe this isn't the space for me or, you know, teaching is a really stressful career. And so, you know, maybe you should be looking for something that, you know, isn't so activating. And, and so the ways in which exclusion operated and, and how we groom certain kinds of expectations of who teachers are supposed to be was something that I encountered very, very much so. And, um, and then, you know, especially as like, you know, queer, gender non-conforming, non-binary individual. And, um, you know, like I said, I was diagnosed with learning disabilities as well throughout my experience in higher education. I started to just see the ways in which whatever the mold was, I was not, I was not fitting that mold. Um, and so, yeah, disability studies, mad studies, to go back to your initial question, are I think a way obviously for us to start to deconstruct these really, really harmful ideas that really ultimately forward normative ideas of like of humanity and who we're expected to be and how these ideas are propagated in many professions and, um, you know, like, the benevolence of helping professions, as many people have, you know, written about at this time, um, is like helping professions aren't always so helpful. <laughs> they do a lot of harm. And um, I started really through disability studies and mad studies. Um, you know, I started really realizing ways in which I had encountered a lot of harm under the guise of helping or people wanting to to help me all oh, like I'm you know I just want to offer you advice so maybe you shouldn't follow this path or you right. know I just want to um, help you find a way that you won't be so activated or stressed and so you know you should do this instead of this or like oh maybe this isn't the space for you um, and so I, you know what can madness offer the field of education to really critically interrogate these practices and the ways in which these othering and exclusionary practices um, you know operate at a you know at a pre-service and in a really early um, level and in how you know and I see it even in the program I teach in is pre-service and I see it in sense of students fears to um, to disclose or to talk about mental health and mental illness or the ways in which they feel often, I think, a lot of shame or that they're not performing some sort of expectation of them if they are to um, disclose any sort of mental illness too. Um, and as a, as a field, like education, we talk so much about um, 
the mental health and well-being of children. And, and of course, that's always through a dominant narrative and story, but still we, I think there's less stigma in terms of talking about it than um, educators openly talking about having mental illness. Um, you know, and even those people that I, I mentioned throughout my, you know, my uh, university career who, you know, have tried to maybe gently say like, oh, go and do like a administrative position instead of being in the classroom or like um, follow this trajectory instead of this trajectory or like, oh, you know, we, um, we don't often have a lot of educators with, uh, uh, you know, those types of complex conditions um, in, in the field. Like, you know, this isn't to shame or, or anything. I think a lot of people genuinely think they're helping, but the problem is, is we don't interrogate helping. <laughs> so right. what does it mean when we're helping? Um, and, um, and how can we get people critically reflecting on that and thinking about what it means to, um, to be in these helping professions and how can we do differently? And I know that's something that you took up in your article with Sarah Snyder and some other colleagues about the um, unlearning through mad studies. And when I read that article too, like that was um, such a mind blowing and just like amazing article and put words to so many things that I um, have been trying to do in my work with students, with pre-service students. My program um, is pre-service for early childhood education. So we, um, you know, we prepare students who get their, their certification at the end of their four-year degree. And so a lot of what I try to do is, is disrupt um, their ideas of helping and, and what it means to help and what kind of knowledge we draw on when we help and how that is so implicated as well. Um, but... So maybe you can maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, like this project that you're kind of working on, yeah. this paper that you've written, and um, you know, I guess it could it could unfold like pedagogically in the classroom how you might be doing it. But I also wonder, like you know, uh, theoretically, what does it look like to do this work, right? And what do you take up in order to kind of unpack some of the things around helping or around uh you know developmental stages or around those kinds of things that always frame these classrooms yeah for sure definitely i think that one thing to know as well is so the field of early childhood education especially like the pre-service area is still very entrenched in in developmental psychology right as a field and as a discipline like this idea of normative development is um is very much omnipresent and I feel like that there's a lot of expectations that if you're passionate about early childhood education and if you're passionate about working with pre-service students that you um, inherently must draw on, on developmental psych. Like that has to be, so it's like almost this discourse I think that becomes like if you don't draw from developmental psych or, or if, more so if you critique it, that you're almost like a bad you're a bad educator. Um, and I think that that is something that a lot of critical scholars in pre-service early childhood education um, struggle with. And I know in my years teaching in pre-service programs, like developmental psychology as a field has been very, um, yeah, has been very, very omnipresent um, everywhere. And so for scholars who don't want to, to draw from that in their teaching, it can become very, very difficult in many ways. 
Um, and so, yeah, as you mentioned, I'm writing a paper right now, um, and it's an autoethnographic paper that's just reflecting on my experiences, both in pre-service, early childhood um, education and teacher education programs, and then also in um, my teaching capacity. And like a lot of this reflection also came about because, um, you know, I took a three month leave recently um, and I was just burnt out to be honest um and like with everything with the pandemic and, and I just had been working so much and gone right through school for most of my life never taken a break so I just um needed three months off and you know I had been reflecting a lot about do I talk to students about that like do I be honest with people about um you know like having mental health conditions and being diagnosed with um, different things and um, is that something that I want to bring forward because obviously as most folks know there's a lot of politics in the academy about being open about that stuff right and um, you know and, and um, you know like to go back to the examples I brought up I don't um, you know I don't hold any malice against anyone who might have said like oh Adam take this different direction or whatnot, but I think that they were generally trying to help and a lot of times help can be harmful and and you just want someone to say like you know, you're accepted as you are. Like that in itself is like the biggest help. And, mm. and for a lot of mad people, that space, that making that space for madness is not, um, you know, a thing that can really happen in the academy in the confines of how we're expected to think and feel and, and enact ourselves. And, and work, yeah. Work, right? And that's a huge thing too. Um, and so I ended up deciding just, I was going to be open with people in my life, including students, if they did ask about, you know, taking a mental health leave for myself and also about being mad. And I mean, I talk to my students about this in my courses on disability too. And I come out as mad to them in those classes and, and talk to them about my, my history and my experiences being, you know, confined through certain biomedical and diagnostic classifications and what that entails and stuff and so um yeah i i decided to to essentially come out quote unquote as mad um in that in that way to a lot of people and it's something i'm still wrestling with um in terms of you know there's a lot of precarity in the academy and so what does it mean to you know as someone who doesn't have tenure come out as as mad and and to be open about that and um there's so much stigmatization around that but part of my pedagogical praxis with my students is is that like i really want to make space for madness in especially in these helping professions and these pre-service programs and it's an ethic that i have to abide by in terms of being open about who i am and a part of my identity and self that i see as really important and valuable and and something that makes me think different like i wouldn't want to be anything but mad like i wouldn't want to have any other experience and so um you know how can we make space for students to think of themselves outside of these um one-dimensional stories and narratives that we put forward uh, in terms of like what disability is or what madness is and um well i think it'll be i just think it'll be really helpful for students to have that to know that um you know to have your story and for your for you to use your story how you might in the classroom um but i also think like you know you could be out and also still set boundaries right there's still this there's, there's still things that you can yeah, there's something about, uh, you know, being like disabled or mad or 
whatever it might be uh, in uh, a classroom that people think then, oh, then I can ask you anything, right? And I, oh. you can tell me every detail. It's like, that's not necessarily the case. Like I'm going to use it strategically. I'm going to use it. I'm going to manage it that I'm still protecting myself. And so I still think it'll be awesome for you in the classroom, especially pedagogically to get the stories across to your students about how you're going to be challenging perceptions about what it means to be mad and disabled. Yeah. And I hear and agree with what you were saying as well about um about boundaries it's such a it's such a tricky kind of fine line in so many ways because of the sense that you want to feel like you can be for lack of a better word authentic about part of yourself that you see is really valuable and really important and again like I said something that makes you see the world differently and and also what for me led me to really be curious and then want to learn more about theories that help me put language to interrogating things that I had experienced right and so you, you want to be authentic and genuine about that and then at the same time having to navigate it with um the importance obviously of setting boundaries and then also self-protection as well too and I think a lot of scholars um go through that in the academy but for and, and I know the reason, I think because of the professionalized discourses, I think that in pre-service programs, there's an extra added layer on top of um, things for those who are, for those who are bad, um, in the sense of the layer of um, like professionalism and what we think it means to be a professional and also to be someone who's in a helping <laughs> profession too. Like this idea of what it entails to help and to care, um, I think sometimes comes around as a regulatory device. Um, and it means that you're not seen as being able to care or able to help if you are deemed as um, you know, irrational, dependent, um, or any of these discourses or these, these terms that mad and disabled people often get thrown their way. Um, and so I, I think that for a lot of folks who are in the higher education world, who are in the pre-service um, world, there are, you know, a lot of confines. And I mean, in, 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 in all in all, despite what I've mentioned, like I've had it pretty lucky in the sense that like I, you know, I, I do have allies and I do have some great folks around me and, um, you know, I think that as much as there's a lot of work to be done, um, my trajectory isn't the same as like what some other folks might be in terms of the amount of policing and regulation that they've experienced. And so, um, you know, especially thinking about um, the ways in which privilege informs a lot of other areas in my life as well too. Um, and so for me, I think it's less risky for me to come out as mad, mm -hmm. maybe, than for some other folks because of the various um, privileges in my social location. Like I read as male and I, um, you know, come from an upper middle class background and um, I am white and a settler. And I think that like, there's a lot that, you know, if I can come out as mad and make space for madness because I have so many layers of privilege, then, um, then that, like, obviously, I'm willing to do that. But I think there's a lot of folks who might not have that choice that I have. Right. Yeah. 
Well, I, I appreciate the acknowledgement and I think that's absolutely true. And, and um, yeah, and I also think like you do have lots of people, right. Who are going to, who are going to support you. And uh, if not in Guelph alone, definitely like in other places across Ontario, I'm one. Yay. Thank you. Well, I appreciate you bringing me on. And I mean, like I said, I, I think that um, like, there's a lot of work to be done, but um, I think, that the students and getting at the students and exposing them to these theories and having these conversations is a great way to start because the students are critical thinkers. Like I think that the university, the institution obviously operates um, through a way where it's a logic of almost regurgitation, like for students, they mm. have to just memorize and memorize and repeat back. And, um, you know, you even see it with how courses can be set up so that multiple choice tests become the most um, convenient way <laughs> to assess, right? Because- I just rolled um, my eyes, so. <laughs> so. I mean, it's like, I hate multiple choice tests. I actually, if I'm being real, hate standardized testing in general and try to, um, you know, take that out of my my assignments and courses as much as I can. But the institution uh, operates off of that stuff, especially I find like the more traditional social sciences like psychology, sociology, um, and you have these large class sizes and then um, you have maybe a small TA allotment and, and that's it. And so it becomes the most convenient way for a lot of instructors, I think, to just kind of do their Scantron tests and whatnot. And so in that, obviously, then a certain learning style is, is privileged and also a certain idea about um, knowledge and what knowledge is expected to entail. And it's expected to be like rote memorization and then regurgitate back and and whatnot. And so in my courses, I do really, really try to disrupt that. Like, I'm pretty excited because this coming semester in my course, I'm actually getting students to make a TikTok video. Um, nice. And so yeah, so they're making a TikTok video. And um, that's one of their assignments. And it's um, based on they have to go find um, an article um, written by a mad or disabled activist, and think about a social issue that the article is bringing forward, and kind of make their own activist video that talks about these issues and, and make a TikTok video. And I think that that's such like a, a fun and, um, you know, multimedia kind of way of, of assessing that doesn't rely on like these standardized tests and stuff that are so prominent and um, also gets them to learn that they as students can think and and that they have, um, you know, they can be activists in their own right. And I think that that's a lot of um, what I see at least is, is that students don't always know that they can have a voice and that they can mm. actually be critical um, and, uh, and think for themselves. And, and that also theory is a way to um, assist them in deconstructing things that go on in the world around them. They're so used to probably, at least from my experience, I can only talk from what I've seen, um, like memorizing and speaking um, on like, you know, again, terms, definitions and whatnot that this idea of actually, um, you know, learning theory and learning things that can help them actually be critical of the world around them is new for a lot of students. And they don't actually, I think, maybe know that they can um, be advocates, they can be activists, they can think critically, and they don't have to just regurgitate back. Um, it's, it also, it's also like, you know, knowledge dissemination in some ways, if they, for example, get on 
like one of the TikTok trends. And all of a sudden they're taking a trend that's really popular that people are using, you know, kind of superficially to potentially to make commentary. But if they can then bring a critical lens to it and add to a conversation that's quite popular, then then they're also disseminating like mad studies or disability studies knowledge, which is fantastic. And, <laughs> and can be really hard, I think, for some kind of academics who are doing the traditional way. Totally. I mean, like I said, for me and my courses, and, you know, I, I think, and I wrote about this in the paper, but too, part of my math studies, pedagogy is moving away from these, these hierarchies and these ideas of standardization and, and yeah. all that obviously is entrenched in, um, you know, a lot of the developmental knowledge that they learn as well, too, and how, um, you know, certain kinds of ways of being are, are normalized. And so, I try my best in my courses to move away from all of that and, and provide them with um, different kind of, of ways of, of expressing their knowledge and understanding. Um, and it relates to a book, actually. I mean, because one of your questions is about book, but I can save it for later. But I've been reading this this book, actually, that talks about that as well. Um, and, and like it, it, it relates to like the idea, too, that we um, I think we as a institution, like as higher education, um, don't see the humanities as valuable anymore as well too in critical thinking. And so one of the books I've been reading really touches on that, but I can save that for later once we get to that question. So actually let's get to, first I'll say that this paper that I hope will be published soon is fantastic. I got a chance to read it. You sent it to me and I just think it's wonderful. And I can't wait for it to be published and for everyone else to read it. But it might be good to move on to the next segment, um, what I call the middle or the liminal. I want to know who is your academic crush? Who are you currently like can't get enough of right now? Yeah. So, uh, you know, and also I, uh, I forgot to mention, but I am I'm starting a math studies and pre-service ECE study actually too, which is really exciting. So I'm interviewing students about their experiences with disclosure and mental health and mental illness um, in pre-service ECE programs. Um, and so, um, so my whole world has been math studies and, and over the last probably like six months in particular, but um, I am in love with everything that Brenda, Brenda LaFrancois does. I haven't met her yet and I need to meet her. So Brenda, if you're out there, <laughs> I need to meet you yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> I love your work so much and you are my academic crush at the moment. Um, and your paper on psychiatrizing children, um, the book chapter you wrote um, blew my mind and I actually am assigning it to my students. Um, so this is a call to Brenda, please email me. <laughs> So we should go for coffee, please. <laughs> well, I think I think you and like I think Brenda is on the East Coast, but like I yeah. think that might be worth a trip just to hang out with Brenda. Yeah, totally. Literally, I would fly to Newfoundland just to meet her. Exactly. <laughs> this yeah. is my call out right now because um, yeah, I, I'm I'm in love with her work. Um, also, like we talked about earlier, like Ryan Thornycroft's paper was incredible. Yeah, and um, I would love to to get in touch with them and. and and, you know, hear more about, uh, about that work because, um, you know, if anyone gets the opportunity, I think it's in the Canadian Journal of Disability Studies. Um, it's a really, really great paper and definitely worth checking out. So, and like one yeah. of the first times I've seen someone use like cripping and maddening together in this way that like was really helpful for me to think about like uh, what does it mean to madden something? Because I feel like that word is not necessarily very popular yet or is just becoming kind of uh, like a, 
uh, a way for us to talk about doing mad studies work in like a, a kind of active way. So it is a fantastic, fantastic paper. Any yeah. advice you have for younger academics? Oh gosh, I mean, that could be like an episode in itself. Too. <laughs> <laughs> well, like just uh, one piece of advice that you think you would have valued. Yeah. Um, I think find, and I, and I did do this, but I think it's important at an early stage, like find good people um, and also, um, you know, knowledge and I'm going to word this. I think tidbits of advice can come from the most unexpected places. So I've had a lot of people in my life who, um, you know, do different kinds of work um, or different things that are outside of my realm, um, but have offered great um, academic advice and pieces of advice around like navigating the academy. Um, and so I would say to people to, you know, make friends and friends can come in the most unexpected places as well too. Um, and also just know that, um, you know, this is, it's, it's like a community and you need to build your community in order to kind of survive the academy. Um, so find your people, build your networks, find your supports. Um, and then through that, that's where you, like the academy can be more joyful, right? Like a joy bringing experience because you're finding people that um, are like-minded. Um, and I know in my life, I have some people that do like different kinds of work, but um, are really there for me. Um, and have given me great advice. And then I also have lots of people where I feel like I can be like myself and genuine because they get me and they like do the work that I do. And that is, means a lot to me. Um, so I think my ultimate tip to a younger me and to anyone who's trying to kind of navigate all this stuff is to find your networks of support and your people because it can be really life filling when you do so. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, how many times have I sent a uh... Uh, a venting text to someone for them to respond like the way I want them to respond and for everything that I'm feeling to be validated and that can be like the most just reassuring thing you know and like that's because you're in your community where you're with your people exactly it's so needed and that validation and that affirmation really goes a long way and yeah. I know so many of us um we feel this need to perform in the academy and like this like it's very much like this like I do um, like a little pretending that I'm putting a tie on type of thing. Um, <laughs> like, you know, I'm putting my tie on and I'm straightening my tie, but I think it's very like um, ingrained in the academy that still that we um, have to perform that role, which is, you know, like going back to what I talked about at the beginning, what drew me to mad studies and disability studies and sense of thinking of different ways of being and relating to others. So when you find that community of people, like stick to it because it can really help you along the way. And I know that that's been the case for me. All right, segment three, outside the research, the project, the work, the art. Um, most famous person or most memorable person you've come across? Oh my gosh, I was thinking about this and I was just, oh gosh, honestly, I don't think I've even met that many famous people. Um, I, <laughs> um, I think there was one time when I thought I saw Jennifer Aniston in Toronto and oh that was God. very exciting. Um, so she was like across the street and walking in a different direction, but I'm pretty sure I saw her face. Um, so I didn't meet her, but I was like across the street from her and turned around and was like, hey, Jennifer Aniston. So <laughs> if that counts, um, that's- It does, awesome. yeah. <laughs> that's so 
totally probably the most, if we're talking about more Hollywood kinds of fame, um, the most famous person I've met. Oh, actually, do you know what? Um, okay, so I've met some of the drag queens from, from RuPaul. Um, you know, not that, you know, uh, RuPaul's politics should be upheld as the, you know, world standard, because it's not. Um, but either way, um, I do love some of the queens from the show. And I, I've met some of the queens. Um, so I met Tatiana. And I met Aja um, as well, who is uh, season seven, I think, and then All Stars. Um, and I met Detox as well, too. And that was cool. Yeah, so that was pretty cool. Um, uh, so they're probably, in terms of the actual meeting, like if I'm talking one on one, then the most famous people that I've met. Cool. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean the, the we can we can leave the politics out, but the artists are artists, right? Regardless oh, yeah. of how we got to them. Yeah. I love Aja too. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. Obscure fact you carry around. So this is the one you pull out during awkward meetings or you know, when you're just when you're when you just wanna, you know, demonstrate you know something that's outside of academia and disability yeah. studies. Yeah, okay. Um so um I thought that this was about me, so I pulled. I, so this is like kind of my icebreaker fact. We yeah. Talking about Hollywood, anyways. So I almost grew up in California. Um. So that's fun. Um. My dad got a job in California, and he was like working in Los Angeles for a while, and so he was doing like the whole back and forth thing, um, between Canada and, and LA, and then he got um offered. I think something down there. Either way, I remember that we were like um, looking at places down there and it was this whole to do. Um, and I spent like a whole summer in California and then um, we were too far from Canada and we just didn't like being in the States. So <laughs> sorry, Americans. And then we moved back up to Canada. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so. like, I feel like California is not really the States, but I mean, some parts are, but you know, like uh, it would have been very different upbringing. Honestly, I feel like in some ways if I, um, so I used to be and I still kind of am like obsessed with the MTV reality show The Hills. And so <laughs> whenever I think about the fact that I almost grew up in California, I think about The Hills and like Lauren Conrad and I'm like, hmm, maybe I could have been Lauren Conrad's best friend. <laughs> like, you know, I could have got on an MTV reality show. Um, oh, because that's like actually one of the other little known facts. I would love my own MTV reality show. So if MTV is listening, you got to like hit me up too. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, if they really, I mean, the chair of the, the show on Netflix wasn't as exciting as I thought it was going to be. So I'm pretty sure like an MTV version of Academia would be yeah. so good. Right, exactly. I've thought about this. I feel like it would actually be a very, very interesting show. Um, so they don't, they don't know how vicious reviewer two can be. Like exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Filming like your face when you get those comments. <laughs> It'd be like the famous moment with Lauren Conrad where the mascara was dripping down on her face. <laughs> <laughs> exactly so, yeah. yeah I feel like that this should be a thing so if MTV Canada is listening then you can um send me an email and maybe we can set something up. <laughs> um so tell me about this book that you're reading oh yes yes okay so I'm reading two books um and um they're both kind of um connected but the one that I was reading that was talking about the power of the humanities this is what the author says the power quote unquote of humanities um, it's called Sense Making, 
Um, so it's by Christian um, Madsberg. And um, you know what? I actually honestly had never heard of Christian or his work before, but I was at a used bookstore that I love in downtown Kitchener. And I came across the book and it looked so interesting. And um, the whole point of the book is it's about how um, the humanities is often um, devalued and denigrated in our mm. society and in our neoliberal, you know, higher education standardized system. And so a lot of people who are out in the world right now don't get trained in critical thinking and critical thought. And they um, often in particular um, devalue the power of culture and cultural studies. Um, and so he's writing a lot in this book um, and I've just started it. So I'm still working my way through it about, um, you know, uh, the importance of uh, engaging and learning about our culture and society and cultural phenomena and how um, this can also assist us as a society in um, learning to be able to be critically engaged with, you know, politics, with, um, you know, the whole world around us and, and being able to not just think in this very, like, scientific positivist kind of mentality um so i just started it but um you know i was excited to see it because it's a lot of stuff that i've been thinking about anyways in general and then yeah i just saw it at my favorite used bookstore so that was pretty exciting um so yeah book. that's one of um the other book i'm reading is called saving normal an insider's revolt against out of control psychiatric diagnosis dsm big pharma and the medicalization of ordinary life um and so this one is by alan francis who was right. the chair of, of the dsm4 task force and he essentially is communicating his concerns about the dsm and the ways in which we've become an overdiagnosed society um and his issues with like the criteria in the dsm and uh how the dsm gets used in society and like the you know the economy behind big pharma and the pharmaceutical industry um so yeah and again this one i also just started i actually just picked this one up on my uh trip actually i saw it in a bookstore uh and was very excited because someone in my life had recommended it to me um and so so far it's pretty interesting um and i've read like alan francis has some blog posts and things online as well too so you can go online and like mad in america has some of this work i think as well um but yeah he has like different um postings everywhere so you can go and read about his uh his work uh there as well and the book is kind of an amalgamation of of the whole bunch of like these different posts and his thoughts from there together so yeah it's pretty interesting though so, so thank that's you kind for of what those, I'm right now. those are two like uh fantastic recommendations sense making specifically sounds like really interesting and really important yeah i'm really enjoying it so far i've just started it so i can't speak for the whole book but um from what i've read so far it sounds really interesting and i love that i just also like had been thinking about these things in my life in general and then encountered it yeah blue in the bookstore like i love finds like that so tell us about a hobby or something that you enjoy that uh that brings you joy yeah, okay. So I guess it's a hobby now, but it didn't used to be a hobby, but um, I did my undergrad in music. Um, so I um, 
I'm a musician and I'm a classically trained saxophonist. Amazing. Uh, fun. Yeah. So I have my degree in music and, um, you know, uh, I guess like for a long time, obviously it didn't count as a hobby because it was like my life. Um, and not that it isn't my life anymore, but it's um, a smaller part of my life. But recently I've been picking up my saxophone again and playing and, um, and that feels really, really nice. Um, and um, I love that. Another thing that is um, music related that I enjoy that's uh, also a little, actually, I wouldn't say it's little known anymore because I've been more vocal about it, but it used to be maybe little known about me is that I love karaoke. Um, and so I've been doing a lot of like the YouTube karaoke like, <laughs> videos, especially during COVID when I like want to like um, amuse myself and whatnot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I actually brought out on my PlayStation 2, I have this like American Idol karaoke game. <laughs> and so I brought out my American Idol karaoke and set up my PlayStation 2 again so that I could um, sing on my karaoke. Like they have the karaoke mic thing that attaches to the PlayStation 2. Um, so I that, love that. Fun. Yeah. So <laughs> did you want to play some sax on the podcast? Not right now. <laughs> okay. All right. Gives me to take out that request. Does me to take out that request. <laughs> no, it's okay. I was not ready for it. But I mean, in the future, if you let me know, then I would be happy to. <laughs> Sounds good. So I like ending every podcast, of course, with every session by asking, um, how do you think disability can save the world? Um, you know, I think one thing that I've been thinking a lot about is... Um, and again, this is from like a lot of different um, disability studies scholars work who talks about this, like Tanya Tchaikovsky, Dan Goodley, but like how disability and madness, I think can help us reimagine how we relate to each other and like ideas that we have about what it means to be a normative person. Um, in, in my grad school training, we, we read a lot of like Sylvia Winter's work um, and other black scholars work around um, like reimagining the human. And I think that um, one thing that disability does, and I talked to my students about this too, is really get us to reimagine ideas that we have about like what it means to be human and what it means to relate to each other. And I think right now in this time in this society, that's something that we really need to keep rethinking and the ways in which we um, have these defined kind of um, boundaries between people and then who people that we see as not even um, being able to count as human. Um, there's this one beautiful paper by Maria Carmiris, who is a disability studies scholar who does work in like ECE and elementary education around like deconstructing independence and how independence like becomes the goal standard when we work with children. And, and I think like, I love that notion of deconstructing independence. And I think that that's something that disability and madness do really well and get us to rethink like what that means. Um, so that's kind of where my thinking is at right now with that question. Awesome. Thank you so much, Adam, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was really fun. <laughs> I've had a lot of fun. Thank you. No worries. So thanks to Adam for coming on the show. Get in touch by sending us an email at disabilitysavestheworld at gmail.com. If you're interested in learning more about me, you can check out my website at fadyshinuda.com. This podcast is hosted and produced by me and edited by Yasmina Garcia. Thank you for listening and see you next time on Disability Saves the World.